Well, let me pray for us before we look at Psalm 27. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that we can gather this morning to hear from your word, to ponder your very words to us. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would do a work upon our minds and upon our hearts, that we might see this truth, understand it, and delight in it with the sole purpose of delighting in Jesus above all other things. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it's been just over three months since we last gathered as the people of God to worship God. And I know that many of you have shared probably the same longing and desire that I've had over these last few months to be with the people of God, to fellowship with God and to behold God in all of his radiance together as a unified people. And so in light of our return, I, I was thinking, what should I preach on? And I thought verse 4 of Psalm 27 captures so truly what I have felt and what many of you have felt and what we ought to feel. So this morning, we're just going to look at one verse, Psalm 27, verse 4. Now, in order for us to understand it, I, I think we also just need to look at the wider context of this psalm to grasp the significance of these words. So David, according to verse 2 and 3, he has enemies who are seeking to try and destroy him. In verse 11 and 12, he has false witnesses who are breathing out violence against him. Now, we're not sure what situation David is referring to. And there's probably wisdom on God's part in this because this psalm becomes a prayer for all God's people when placed in unwanted circumstances. In the midst of these unwanted circumstances, David expresses his sure confidence in the Lord, but also his ultimate desire for the Lord. Confidence that even though his enemies have surrounded him, he believes the Lord is his light and salvation, the stronghold of his life, as we saw in verse 1. He believes that God will be his shelter and his protection against this enemy, verse 5 and 6. And he is so confident that God will deliver him that he concludes in verse 13 that he shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And it's precisely this confidence in God that enables him to wait for the Lord in verse 14. But David not only expresses his confidence in the Lord, but he also expresses his desire for the Lord. And this is where I want to focus our attention this morning in verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing he asks, one thing he seeks after. Out of all the things he could have sought after, this is what David longed for. 
This is what defined David as a man. David was not a perfect man. He committed several different kinds of sins, horrific sins, but he was a man who longed for God. And what we see here, what defines David here, ought to define every follower of Jesus. This was his supreme desire and his purpose in his life. Now I want you to notice that within the one thing, there are three components. There's a threefold reality that captures the one thing that he asks and seeks after. There's a threefold desire on the part of David. The first is he desires ongoing communion with God. The second is he desires to behold God in all of his beauty and radiance. And the third is he desires to explore, to contemplate God. So first, he desires ongoing communion with God. One thing I ask and seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He desires ongoing communion with God. Now I say ongoing because David doesn't merely want temporary fellowship with God. He doesn't merely want to have a few moments in the presence of God. He longs for it to be ongoing. As he says, All the days of my life, I long to dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, the house of the Lord, of course, is is a reference to the tabernacle and and ultimately fulfilled in the temple. The temple that that King Solomon built was to be a, a meeting place between God and his covenant people, Israel. It was the chosen location that God chose to dwell and manifest his presence to his people. The place of of fellowship and and worship between God and Israel. It was the center of Jewish worship, life, and culture. And so David is saying that, that he desires above all else to dwell in the tabernacle, to dwell in the temple all the days of his life. Why? Because God is there. It's the place where God has chosen to dwell. He longs to rest in the presence of God and commune with God. And this ought to be the longing of every follower of Jesus. Now, it's important we understand that David hasn't, he hasn't reduced God's presence to the temple. See, though the temple was the place of God's special presence... Israel still believed that God's presence was everywhere. He is an omnipresent God. As Psalm 139, 7-8 declares, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I, if I make my, my bed in Sheol, that is the place of the dead, you are there. See, this is why in King Solomon... In his dedication of the temple, he declares that God cannot be bound by the temple. In 1 Kings 8.27, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. You see, Israel understood that God couldn't be contained even by the heavens. The heavens and the universe are in God not God in the heavens. 
But God, in his mercy and kindness towards his covenant people Israel, he chose to graciously give his presence to them through abiding with the temple, in the temple, in a way he did not give to the other nations. He made his presence known in a unique way. It would be this specific location that the people of God would gather to worship God and to enjoy his glory. You see, David knew he, he could encounter God in other ways. But he knew there was something unique about gathering at the temple with the people of God in the presence of God. But what about us as New Covenant believers? Where is the place of God's dwelling for us to engage with him? Where is the, the location that we must go to in order to commune and fellowship with God? Well, we know that under the new covenant, there, there isn't a specific location that God has chosen to dwell. And this is precisely what Jesus articulates to the Samaritan woman in, in John 4, verses 20 to 24. The Samaritans had their own temple built to Yahweh, and, and there, was, there was basically division over where is the place to worship Yahweh. And so she's in this conversation with, with Jesus, and this is what we read. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. See, it's, it's, it's no longer about which mountain God has chosen to dwell upon. It's rather about a people who desire to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so in one sense, as followers of Christ, as New Covenant people, we can worship and enjoy God's presence through our everyday experiences as individuals, anywhere and at any time. We can commune with God as we engage life, as we walk through a park enjoying His creation as we sit down for coffee with a friend, as we listen to beautiful music, pondering and reflecting upon beautiful art, learning about history, God's history in our world, washing the dishes, doing the laundry, cleaning the floors, having a barbecue with friends, and etc. and etc. In one sense, this is going to sound controversial, but it's not, we can say that all of life is sacramental. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this, all that is visible, all that is material in our human experience is meant to convey or to lead us to the invisible. It's meant to lead us to the spiritual realm. All that you behold visibly is meant to point you to deeper spiritual realities. In other words, this world that we live in is a world of symbolism. Let me give you two quick examples of this in the Old Testament. The first example is the tabernacle and the temple. 
The tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament was a copy of a heavenly reality. Right? That's exactly what the writer in Hebrews, argue, Hebrews argues when he says in chapter 8, verse 1 to 5, Now the point of what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer now, if he, that is Christ, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Hear this. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that is the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." So there was already a pattern from God that was then given to Moses. So the tabernacle was to reflect, it was a copy of a heavenly reality. It was made so that the visible would reveal the invisible. And the other example, and there's lots of examples in the Bible, but one other example is Psalm 19.1, which we are all familiar with. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In other words, when we look at the, the night sky and the, the, the sky lit up with stars, that visible picture is to lead us to a deeper spiritual reality, to the invisible reality of the glory of God. And so as Christians, we actually must learn to commune with God through our experiences of living in his enchanted world. So, we can commune and fellowship with God as Christians anywhere and at any time. We can do this through our everyday experiences. But, but, there is a specific place under the new covenant that God has chosen to dwell that is unique just as he did in the Old Testament. See, God has not chosen to uniquely manifest his presence in a building like he did in the Old Testament. God has not chosen this building to be the place where he uniquely dwells. But under the new covenant, God has chosen to dwell in the midst of his gathered new covenant people in a way that is unique from all other encounters with God. In one sense, every human being encounters the presence of God regardless of whether they know him or love him because he's omnipresent. But it is to his new covenant people that he chooses to dwell in a way that is utterly unique that the unbelieving world does not understand, cannot grasp because they are blind to that reality. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16 Paul here is talking about not being unequally yoked to an unbeliever. And the reason is he gives very specific theology about who the covenant people of God are and what it means to be the covenant people of God. And this is what he says. What agreement has the temple of God? He's speaking to Christians. He's calling them the temple of God. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the fulfillment of the old covenant temple is the new covenant people. We are the temple of God. There's no longer a physical temple that God dwells in because we have become the temple that God has chosen to dwell amongst. And this is why we ought to treasure above all other things the gathering of the local church. When we assemble as the people of God to worship him corporately. For it's when we gather, whether inside this building or outside where we, will, where we will soon sing, that we can have confidence by faith that Christ is among us, for we are his temple. This is why watching church from home isn't church. And this is partly why not being together was probably so emotionally difficult for many of us. See, we can fellowship with God outside our local gathering. But central to our faith is a communal experience, one with another, in the presence of God, worshiping Him, because Christ has chosen to dwell amongst us. There is something unique and sacred when we come together to edify one another with gospel songs and to listen to the words of God read and his words expounded and to hear prayers in light of scripture and as we take of holy communion. These are things the theologians call the ordinary means of grace. They're ordinary. They're, there's nothing super profound about, about reading from the Bible or, or taking of the Lord's Supper. But in one sense, there is. It's deeply sacred. It's the ordinary means of grace. These are things that God himself has established in order for his people to commune with him. And so I hope and pray that our not, that our not being able to gather over these last three months would only instill in us a deeper longing to dwell in the presence of God with the people of God, enjoying communion with God. May the people of RYBC be known above everything else for a desire to commune with God above all else. Secondly, David desires to behold God in all his beauty and radiance. That's what he says again in verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So not only does he long to commune with God, but he longs to look upon the beauty of God and be satisfied with what he beholds. You know, the idea of God being beautiful has in many ways been a neglected study in Protestant evangelical circles, which I think is extremely sad. Because the Bible speaks quite often to God's beauty. For example, in Psalm 52, we read this, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Psalm 96, verse 6, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Isaiah 28, 5, In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. 
Now, I don't have time to unpack a theology of beauty this morning, but let me just say this. All that God is, is intrinsically beautiful. All of his attributes that make him God are intrinsically beautiful. Listen, beauty is not in the eye of beholder. Beauty is not subjective. God is objectively beautiful, whether you find him beautiful or not. The problem is not God. The problem is you. He is the source of all beauty. His righteousness is beautiful. His holiness is beautiful. His goodness is beautiful. His purity is beautiful. His simplicity is beautiful. His immutability is beautiful. His triunity is beautiful. His mercy, grace, love are all beautiful. He is what theologians call the beautiful. And therefore, he is the source of all that is beautiful. Just as he is the source of all life because he is life, so he is the source of all that is beautiful because he is beautiful. And David, being a lover of God, longs to gaze upon the beauty of God. Now, some of you may be thinking, how can we gaze upon the beauty of God if we can't actually see God with our eyes? He's spirit. Well, the Bible primarily speaks of seeing God through the eyes of faith. In other words, you have, if you're a Christian, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you have another set of eyes that allows you to behold God in such a way that the rest of the world is unable to do. This is precisely what what the Apostle Paul articulates in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, which, which Jim read for us. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. They can't see it. In their case, the God of this world has blinded, blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So so the unbeliever has been blinded by the God of this world, that is Satan. They are unable to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You could translate it this way. Unable to see the light of the gospel of the beauty of Christ. And then he says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the only difference between you as a follower of Jesus and the unbelieving world is this. God has shone in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory or the beauty of God in the face of Jesus. We've been given eyes to see. We've been given the eyes of faith. We're able to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus because God has given us spiritual sight that we might see his glory in Jesus. But here's the problem. None of us have also seen Jesus physically. So how do we gaze upon the beauty of Christ if we can't also physically see him? Well, I want to suggest two ideas which are similar to my first point about communing with God. See, we commune with God, as I said, through our earthly experience because God is present everywhere at all times. 
He can be experienced through every good endeavor. But we also saw that God is uniquely present in the midst of his gathered people. Jesus in the midst of his church. He makes himself present to his church through the ordinary means of grace, like the preaching of the word, the reading of scripture, prayer, singing, and holy communion. And I would argue it's a similar pattern when it comes to seeing the beauty of God in the face of Jesus. Theologians have often referred to this idea of God's two books. He has two books. One, the book of creation, which is a form of God's revelation. And secondly, the book of scripture, another form of God's revelation where he reveals himself. So how do we gaze upon the beauty of Christ in light of the fact that God has given us two books, the book of creation and the book of scripture? Well, first, we gaze upon the beauty of Christ by allowing the beauty of his creation to lift us up into pondering the wonder of Christ. In other words, the beauty of creation is a small reflection of the beauty of Christ. You see, there are three ways to relate to the creation. Two of these ways are not Christian, and one is. Let me, let me illustrate this. The first way is this. There, there are millions of people through history who have been enamored with the beauty of, for example, the moon or the sun. And it's led them to actually worship the moon and the sun. Now, as Christians, this is what we would call idolatry. This is not the proper response to the beauty of creation. The other response, which is prevalent in our modern culture, because we are modernists and we only see the material world, or we only believe in the material world, is to view the moon purely in material categories. So the person looks at the moon and he, he sees a rock that reflects light, and, and they might conclude it's beautiful, but that's about it. There's nothing more to the moon than the fact that it's just a rock. That's also not the Christian response. See, the proper Christian response is to believe the moon is preaching to us. The proper Christian response is to behold the beauty of the moon so that, as Steve West says, it lifts our minds and our hearts to behold the beautiful, namely God in the face of Jesus. The beauty of creation ought to lead us to the beautiful Creator. And so we gaze upon the beauty of Christ by allowing the beauty of creation to lift us up into pondering the wonder of Christ. Secondly, we gaze upon the beauty of Christ through God's revelation of him given to us through his word. It's in the scriptures where we see Christ more clearly than anywhere else. Jesus himself said that the scriptures testify to him. This is why we are people of this book. Because we believe this book reveals to us Jesus Christ, the King and the Savior of the world. We get to behold his beauty in the scriptures. We get to behold his, his beauty in regards to his gentleness and his severity. His humility and power. He cares for the outcasts, but displays his power over sickness and death. His purity. He never succumbs to sin. His wisdom, as he often confounds the religious leaders, his treasuring of children, 
His forgiveness and compassion towards sinners. His holy indignation towards hardened sinners. His hatred for hypocrisy. His triumph reign over sin and death through his resurrection. His teachings of virtue. His courage in the midst of opposition. His self-control in the midst of false accusations. His love displayed on the cross for sinners. That's what we get to behold in the scriptures. And I have only touched the surface of the beauty of Christ presented to us in the sacred scriptures. This is why when we gather as a church family, everything revolves around the word of God. We pray the word. We sing truths from the word about the word. We read the word. We preach the word. For we believe that we behold the beauty of Christ through his word. And as we behold Christ through creation and through his word, we believe by the spirit of God that we are being transformed. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 declares, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Dostoevsky declared that I believe in the end the world will be saved by beauty. And I heartily agree with him because the beautiful, namely Christ, is the savior of the world. And the gospel is the beautiful story of redemption by which the king redeems a filthy peasant and transforms her into a royal bride. Church, this is why we seek to gather week in and week out as a local body that we might commune with God and that we might gaze upon the beauty of God and finally, that we might explore, that we might contemplate the boundless depths of God. That's what we see here with David. He desires to explore, to contemplate God, verse 4, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He desires to meditate upon God. He desires to contemplate who God is and what he has done. He wants to ponder God with his mind and allow that pondering to lead him to the worship of God. See, the scriptures over and over again talk about the importance of the mind in growing in the likeness of God. This is why when we gather as a church for corporate worship, our worship services, they involve participation of the mind. See, I refuse to dumb down our services because God has called us to contemplate his infinite work. See, if you come here to chuck your brain out the window, then you will not be able to experience the fullness of what we're trying to do here. See, there are certain religions and certain spiritual, spiritualities that seek to bypass the mind. But Christianity doesn't do that. Part of our worship to God is to think upon what we are singing, reading, praying, and preaching. And as we actively engage our minds, we are then gaining greater insight into who God is so that we can conform our lives to him. See, we're called not just to love God with all our heart and strength, but also with our minds. See, Christian, we have the greatest privilege 
of contemplating an infinite God of intrinsic goodness and beauty. And it's so perplexing to me when so many people who profess that they are Christians seem to have so little interest in growing in the knowledge of an infinite, beautiful God. Contemplating who he is and what he has done should be our aim in life. I am more and more convinced than ever before that the greatest problem facing the evangelical church today is ignorance regarding the doctrine of God. He is an endless cave to be explored. His greatness cannot be bound by the billions of galaxies in the night sky, and yet he invites us to ponder him and to know him. And the more you ponder him, the more you will discover the incredible delight of a never-ending pursuit that will lead you only to greater depths and wonder of the God we claim to worship. I believe Spurgeon said it best in his sermon that he preached January 7, 1855 on Malachi 3.6. Let me close by, by reading his introduction to his sermon. And this introduction is better than my whole sermon. But listen to these words. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the intention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its affinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a lot larger mind than him who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investig investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in, in, and in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Church, this is the one thing David asked for. 
This is the one thing that he seeks. That he would dwell in the presence of God all the days of his life. That he would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to contemplate the greatness of our God. And may this define each of us as individuals, but also as a church. He is worthy of this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, forgive us for our lack of delight and our lack of desire to want to seek you. And Lord, I pray that you would use this sermon to instill in us a longing, a hunger, a thirst to behold God in all of his radiance and beauty, to commune with him and to contemplate the greatness of who he is. Help us, Lord, in this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.